is such a great message in this song about the normality of living for Christ and how that changes the world. And when you think about scriptures, it's so often these little stories that speak so loudly. The loaves and the fishes, he references that feed 5,000 and 4,000. Jesus says, faith like a mustard seed can move mountains. But so often with our Western minds, we think about dream big. We want to do great things for God. And like he says, in, in our big dreams, we miss the small moments. And this morning, we want to look at uh, doing what Jesus does, the third part of discipleship. Uh, but as we do that, I really want to bring us down to earth to a ground level. And I think that uh, this song does a fantastic job of reminding us what that is. In Jesus' day, there, there were a group of spiritual leaders in the community who were called rabbis. These rabbis had followers called disciples. And Jesus was a rabbi, and Jesus therefore had many disciples um, who would follow him, and he made disciples. And then through the course of 2,000 years, every single church exists because Jesus' disciples went and made disciples. So you are here this morning uh, through a relationship with Jesus. If you're a Christian, otherwise someone's busy trying to get you to know Jesus or you're curious about him. But if you're here as a Christian this morning, you're here because Jesus made disciples 2,000 years ago. You're one of his disciples. You have a direct connection to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. There is not a single church in the whole world that Jesus is uh, part of using and making and growing that he didn't form through his direct discipleship uh, over the years. So some traditions uh, find pride in taking themselves back to uh, an apostle, Peter. We can find our pride. This, uh, he sings of a tiny little church. Uh, we can take our pride in our church that we are a direct uh, consequence of the discipleship of Jesus Christ. What a blessing um, to be the church of Jesus. And wherever you go in any church tradition, uh, church traditions aren't actually a big deal. The result of any church tradition should be the same. It should be people who are thinking like Jesus, loving like Jesus, and living like Jesus. Wherever you go, whether Methodist, Baptist, uh, wh whatever your tradition, non-tradition, uh, if the result is that the people in that church love God, they think, like they think like Jesus thought, they love like Jesus loved, and they live like Jesus lived, that's a fantastic uh, discipling church. Um, and there's these three marks that we spoke about of a disciple. Number one is to be with your leader 24-7. Number two is to become like your leader in every way possible. And Josh spoke so well about this last week. You become what you behold. And uh, today we're going to look at do what your leader does. And so the question is, what is Jesus doing? Or what does Jesus do? I wonder if you'll turn with me to Luke 4. And I'm going to read uh, a little bit of it. And we're going to look at these three parts. We're going to look at what it means to be with Jesus, uh, what it was to become like Jesus in every possible way, but then much more. What does Jesus do? Jesus, it says, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment and time, and said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, 
and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will, be, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on a pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until the opportune time. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and report of him, about him uh, went out throughout all the surrounding country. And he, he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So here's Jesus after his baptism, and uh, he goes and has a 40-day fast. It's pretty tough. And the devil comes. He's going to tempt him. The devil comes and he says, okay, if you're a big shot uh, that you say you are or that you think you are, you think you're something special. I mean, if you thought that you were the son of God, you would really be thinking that you are something special. If you think you're this big shot, something special, and you haven't eaten for 40 days and, and you must be hungry, then why don't you prove that you're this big shot and just turn that rock into bread and feed yourself? In Deuteronomy, God is preparing His chosen people to walk through the promised land, uh, walk into the promised land. And God says to Moses that when He brought them out of slavery, remember when the Israelites came out of Egypt, uh, that He fed them, He had to feed them, they were hungry, and He had to feed them manna. And, and it says in Deuteronomy that God did that, that way, so that He humbled them by allowing them to grow hungry, so that, that they would eat manna from God, and that they would learn that, Man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. There was this uh, metaphor of life. Life is often the metaphor that God uses to teach us something bigger and better. What's going on in your life? That's often not the thing. That's often the metaphor God is using to teach you the big thing. And the case is the same with the Israelites. He brings them out of Egypt. They're hungry. They need God to feed them. He feeds them through manna. Uh, it's there every morning, this bread. This tastes like honey, this sweet bread. And He's humbling them to learn that even their basic need, even in their basic needs, they need God to speak or, or they, go, they go dead. That life and death are in the, in the words of God. Jesus quotes that text to the devil and says, no, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus is attaching himself to the, to the leaving of Exodus and the entering of the promised land and saying what I am going through is God bringing me to a humble position of relying on Him for everything in life and death. Now, what's the big deal if Jesus has a little rock that turns into bread? In this moment, the devil's trying to get Jesus to uh, self-reliance. And self-reliance is often the art of the devil. God never get, gets us to rely on ourselves, but the devil often tries to. But humble obedience to God always requires faith in Him and His Word. So you can choose self-reliance, yeah, I'll do this thing that I can do, or humble obedience, which leaves us in a vulnerable place of relying on the Word of God uh, for us, and God to look, look after us and take care of us. And so uh, the Word of God gives Jesus, by quoting the Bible, He shows that the Word of God gives Him His life and His vision. I mean, here's Jesus, and He's quoting from, from Deuteronomy, from a text in the Old Testament. They only had the Old Testament, the Torah. They didn't even have the, Old Testament, the whole Old Testament. And Jesus interacts with this temptation with biblical lenses. So He understands all of life through Scripture. What's going on in, in your life? Jesus understands what's going on in his, in his life through the Scriptures. 
And that teaches us that uh, as we are in relationship with God, we can understand our lives and our world through scriptures. What's going on in the world? What's going on in our lives? What can we expect? We, we sang a great song, that, which I, was so, I so appreciated the last verse of it because it's about this, the goodness and the favor that we stand under and that we are anointed for blessing, which is all true. And then the next verse says, but if we should go through suffering and persecution, because that's also true. The, the two aren't opposed to each other. Some of us have the favor of God and the anointing for suffering and persecution. But we all will struggle. But we understand it through the lenses of Scripture. So, so we're not flummoxed. We're not caught off guard. And so Jesus understood his hunger and his thirst through Scripture, just as we can understand our difficult circumstances in life through Scripture. And so Jesus found himself. I remember a friend asked Michael Eaton a stupid question and said, don't you ever get bored of reading your Bible? This is one of the greatest Bible teachers that have ever lived. Uh, and he said, no, I find myself in the Scriptures. How can he say that? Because Jesus found himself in the Scriptures. When he was tempted, his answer came from the Scriptures. This is what I know to do. This is what the Scriptures have said. And so here's the beauty of that truth. If Jesus found himself in the Scriptures, you and I can find ourselves and him in the Scriptures. How do you be with Jesus? You get to know his will. What is like? His understanding of the world. You interact with Him. If He found Himself there, you can find Him there. And you can find yourself there too. So being with Jesus starts by learning to see the world as Jesus sees it. But it goes much deeper. There you go. A new way to see the world. You start to see it like Jesus does. Number two, how do you become like Jesus in every way possible? The devil says, all right, well, uh, you've come to gain all authority, I'll give it to you. I'll give you everything you see. The only thing I want from you is for you to worship me. Everything for one thing. That sounds like a pretty good deal, right? Everything for one thing. He shows Jesus, uh, it's, it, the way Luke is, the, Luke is a very good gospel for us to read because he's the only writer of the gospel that's a Gentile. So he sees all of what Jesus does through the same lenses as we do culturally. And the way he tells the story is that some sort of miracle happened in which the devil was able to show Jesus all glory and authority over the kingdoms of the world. And he was offering Jesus that. He said, that has been given into my hands. And if you will bow down and worship me, I will give you everything. That's what Jesus came for. So he's saying, I'll give you what you want. Just worship me. Everything for one thing. So often, we underestimate the seriousness of what we worship. I want to say that again because I mean it very explicitly. We underestimate the seriousness of what we worship. The only thing the devil asked from Jesus for everything was worship. But Jesus wouldn't do it. What's the price tag of Jesus worshiping? What's the price tag? If we worship our family or our friends or our time or our money or our careers or our cars or our lifestyles or our privacy or even our own personalities, our stubbornness not to change, what's the consequence if we worship that? Temptation usually seems small, but the consequences never, ever are. Josh said last week, you, if you, as an example, he gave all those like that list of if you behold this, you'll become this. If you behold this, you'll become this. It was wonderful. It was really helpful. I wish it went on forever. 
that I could just like stand and look at my life. Okay, so if I behold that, I'll become that. All right, I'll turn away from that. Someone else has said, uh, you, are, you, be, you are what you worship. You, you end up being what you worship. And that's so true. Josh said, if you behold money, you become greedy. It's the consequence, the result. No one would say, yeah, I put my hand up for greed. But no, no, that's not what the devil does. He just gets you to worship money. He doesn't get you to worship something evil. He gets you to worship something good. But the consequence is greed. Um, and so had Jesus bowed down to get the whole world, he would have lost everything. Had Jesus bowed down to get what he came for, he would have lost everything he came for. You, I, I shudder to even say this. I've, I scratched it out of my notes because I didn't want to. I didn't want to say the words because it, it it makes it gives me the creeps to even say. It. Had Jesus bowed down, Jesus would have needed a redeemer. The seriousness of what we worship is beyond exaggeration. Our worship and the trajectory of our lives are connected. Where you're going, where your life is going, where you're heading, where you're going to be in five years, where your marriage is going to be, where your family is going to be, where your career is going to be, where your joy is going to be, where your peace is going to be, is all connected to your worship. And as Christians, we can go, yes. Because if God is what we worship, then we don't know what's going to happen in five years, but we know it's going to be good. We'll be okay. Because God is so, so good. So as we follow Jesus, we learn to uh, worship God above all our desires and longings. Um, Jesus teaches, what will it profit you uh, to, what does he say, to gain the whole world but lose your souls? What if you get everything you want, but in place of it you lose God? Then you, you get nothing. But if you get God, what can you lose? And so what, as we walk with Jesus uh, and we, we, you know, first we see, we get a new way of looking at everything in the world and understanding ourselves. But secondly, we have a new devotion to God. That's, that, let me just tell you outright, is not going to be popular with your friends and family. A devotion to God, you're not going to walk down the street and people are going to high five you. So glad to see your devotion to the Lord. Rarely, rarely, if, if you have been blessed with friends and family who, as you grow in your relationship with God, give you a high five, you have been blessed beyond measure. But if you face persecution, it doesn't mean that you've become some weirdo or you've joined some weird cult. God has, let's just make this clear, has asked you for everything. He has. Everything. Wholehearted devotion to the Lord. So if you give him your everything, you're just entering a relationship like a bride and a groom. Will you marry me for the rest of your life? Yes, I will. That's weird. One guy, the rest of your life? Doesn't that seem a bit restrictive? Odd? No, I love him. I forsake all others for him. I have a, f uh, a friend, I just don't want to say his name who is going through real strife. Uh, no, sorry, he's actually not. That's the, po that's the point of the story. He's going through a really difficult situation where everything he, he has is kind of, it's like sand in your hands, is falling through. He's, everything he, he can touch is like getting lost from and taken from him. And I reached out to him this week and said, man, how are you going? 
Are you all right? How can I pray for you? What's happening? And this was his response immediately. I'm going so well. And I was shocked as a mature Christian that I am uh, that he was going so well. It's like, what? How are you going so well? Like, do you know? Let me just remind you what's happening in your life because it sucks from the outside. And um, he went, I can see the Father's goodness in every single thing that's happening. And I know that he's preparing something wonderful for me. I can see it coming. He's near me. His presence is with me. I'm not, I don't feel scared. I don't feel anxious. But I, I'm, I'm talking about loss of house, loss of home, loss of job, loss of food on the table stuff. I'm not talking about small things. I'm so good because the Father is so near. And I can see He's taking things away to clear a path for His glory in my life. This is, this is a wholehearted devotion. He's not making this up. I mean, you can, you can try to name it and claim it. God doesn't uh, go with that. This is a genuine walking with God, knowing the presence of God, knowing His peace in the midst of a storm. Number three. So do what Jesus does, and this is what I want to show you this morning. Participate in His work. So lastly, the devil takes Jesus to Jerusalem. And, and again, the way that Luke tells the story, it sounds like this miraculous thing is there. Uh, on the pinnacle of the temple, and here, here is Jesus at the epicenter of the Jewish faith. This is, I mean, he's going to come and fulfill the, the Jewish law, and he's going to come and fulfill the Jewish prophecies, and he's going to come and bring the presence of God out of the Jewish temple into the presence of people. Here he is at the very epicenter, and he's standing on the pinnacle, and, the, and, and Satan says to him, okay, you're here to save the world. We both know the scriptures say God will uh, uh, send his angels to guard you, as we, we read it here. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. On their hands they will uh, bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Uh, you are unkillable. Jump off this building and prove the scriptures. Now Satan starts preaching from the text. This is false teaching, even though Satan's preaching from the Bible. False teaching might still be the truth, but for the wrong reason. And Satan's preaching the truth. It does say that God, that God will uh, send his angels concerning Jesus. But Satan's trying to get Jesus to show that it's impossible for him to die. What did Jesus do? What, what did Jesus come for? He came to die. J- J- Satan is twisting the whole story to say, look, do something that should kill you and show that God will make you live. And uh, uh, Jesus, he knows in his heart that he has to come and miraculously die, not miraculously live. He's twisting the whole gospel story around. It wasn't a miracle that Jesus lived. It was a miracle that Jesus died. And so Jesus says, go away. And he replies with, sorry, in Matthew he says, go away, Satan, leave me. And Luke says, he replies with, the, with another scripture. Yes, but it says, do not test the Lord your God. So what is he stating a claim? He's stating a claim, the Lord is my God, and his purposes to miraculously kill me upon the cross will be fulfilled. Rather than your purposes to get me twisted and thinking about how to live. Remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? You know, if, there's, if it's possible, take this cup from me. Jesus is aching for life. But if this is the only way, if this is your will, not my will, but yours be done. How could he do that? Where did he find the courage? Where did faith get birthed? 
right there. Just jump off. You know the angels will save you. No. When I face death, the angels will not save me. And now is not the time, but it's coming. In that moment of temptation, Jesus chose to do something for you and for me. So then it says the Holy Spirit led Jesus back into Galilee, and his renown began to grow. He was a local here. This is where Jesus grew up. This is his area. You go to the coffee shop and people go, you want the usual? This is Jesus's whatever that is for you, uh, that, that, that local place. So Jesus goes here and um, one thing that he would have likely have done was that he would have uh, gone to synagogue in Nazareth. We're going to read it in a moment at a certain time of the year. He'd go to a certain synagogue in a certain place on a certain Sunday. Joe Amaral, who's uh, kind of an Old Testament teacher, he says that uh, during the Bab- after the Babylonian exile, the Torah, the scriptures, were getting burned, obviously, um, in exile, they were getting burned. And uh, the, the Israelites had to do everything they can to keep hold of it. You don't have, like, photostat machines. You just go make another 100 copies. If you lose the Torah, you lose the Torah. So what they did, and they didn't have time to just copy it. They don't, they don't have the resources. They don't have an office works to go buy paper and pen. So the way was to memorize it, but not everyone can memorize the whole thing. So one of the ways was to break it down into sections and give each family a section of the Bible to memorize. It was their part of the Torah. And so on that Sunday, when that section of the Torah was going to get read, you would make sure that your family is at church, because when it came time to read the scriptures, you would get up and read from that text if they had it, or memorize it if it had been destroyed. You read it out loud so that all the Jews could hear all of the Torah. And so Jesus goes, listen to what it says. It says, he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up as was his custom. He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. So this is probably the day that his family reads their section. If it's not, he's still in the temple and he's still reading from scripture. But it's fascinating if that is the case, what the scripture is that he's given to read. So he's not choosing the text. The text is choosing him, right? There's sovereignty here. This isn't him making much of himself. This is something sovereign is happening and a text is put into his hands and he opens it up and he reads, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This should give you chills. Any scripture could have been given, but that was the scripture. And Jesus reads, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim liberty to the captives. This is awesome stuff. But the crowd hasn't gone wild yet. Then Jesus does something else. We read in, in Luke 8, uh, 19, it says, and he, and he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. In other words, they were gobsmacked. Because there's like a, there's a liturgy. There's a, there's a, you know, you've done your job. Now you sat down. Now we move on to the next thing. They couldn't. They couldn't move on. What, what had happened? Isaiah 61 had been read. All of, uh, they all knew it. Half of them had memorized it. What's going on? Inside the temple was a seat called the Moses seat. And the Moses seat was left for the next Moses, the Messiah, the second Moses to come, was put there. And when someone sat on that seat, it was going to be a declaration that Messiah is here. That's Messiah. 
they had never seen anyone sit on the seat. They forgot anyone was ever going to sit on the seat. It became a decoration at the front of the temple. And then Jesus sat there. Jesus sat on the Moses seat. And the eyes of everyone were fixed. The liturgy was broken. They couldn't go on with their meeting. They're gobsmacked. Jesus, without words, is saying, here I am, the one you've been waiting your whole life for. It's me. What had he just read? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim liberty to the captives. Here I am, Messiah. How glorious. How glorious. Then it says that Jesus... I'm not 100% clear about the timing here, but somewhere before or after this, around that time, John the Baptist gets arrested. And it says that Jesus hears about that, and um, he decides to leave Nazareth and to go to Zebulun and Naphtali. So Jesus decides to do this. Jesus is making decisions by the Holy Spirit and the Bible. He's making everyday decisions. If you have have Jesus' view of life, It enables you every single day to make good decisions. You want to make good decisions today? You want to make good decisions tomorrow? Have you ever made a bad decision? (laughs) I'll show you how. If you want to make good decisions, get to understand the world as Jesus understands it through the lenses of Scripture. Get to understand yourself. It will empower you and enable you and train you tomorrow to make good decisions and the next day and the next day and the next week and the next year and and the rest of your life. But that's not the point. Matthew writes then, he said, in Matthew 4, if you want to read it, verse 14 to 17, it says, Jesus entered this region, and here's why. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, this comes out of Isaiah 9. If you go read Isaiah 9, it talks about the Messiah, uh, who's going to come into Zebulun and Naphtali. It says, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah may be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, this is it, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region of the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is here. What does Jesus do? What is Jesus' work? I think I I can let you know in so few words that you can never forget it. It says in the scriptures that people are in darkness and have seen the great light. It says that a light has dawned on those who were in the shadow of death. And then it says that he declared, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There's three ways of saying the same thing. Could you put it up, Steph? What is Jesus doing? What does Jesus do? He pushes back the darkness. He brings the light. He advances the kingdom on earth. He pushes back the darkness. Jesus said to his disciples, you are the light of the world. So first he goes into this region to fulfill Isaiah 91, that he brings light to people who are in darkness. Those who are in the shadow of death have seen a great light. There's the pushing back against the darkness and bringing of the light. And it is the announcement, the advancement of the kingdom of God. That's what he taught us to pray every day. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. 
now. Your kingdom come now. Your kingdom come through our lives today, at work, at school, in my marriage, in my family. Your kingdom come. Let us push back the darkness and bring the light. And your kingdom come totally forever one day. But in the meantime, your kingdom come. Your will be done. Now, here, through me. It's a disciple's prayer to push back the darkness, to bring the light. How? Through the kingdom coming. Through God's will. The, the king, a kingdom is just where someone's will is exercised. You have a kingdom. When you are doing what you want to do, you are the king of your kingdom or the queen. When we are doing what uh, God wills, we're, we're just being citizens of his kingdom. The king is reigning over our lives and we're getting on with his rulership. And this is what the Holy Spirit enables us to do. So Jesus teaches his disciples, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put them under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others. Why? So that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. What do disciples do? Disciples push back darkness with the light of Jesus' kingdom in every part of our lives. When, when, when Nass and I are, are arguing, I'm just giving like a domestic example. I know it's hard to believe that we would argue. Joking. When Nass and I are arguing, I have a choice. I can bring the darkness or I can push it back and bring, and bring the love of God, His kingdom. But I have to make a choice. His will or my will. Win this argument or let Him win my heart and bring the love. Disciples of Jesus have the most precious knowledge in the whole world. We know, we know Jesus. We know about eternal perfect love. We know about His compassion and mercy, forgiveness and grace, kindness and generosity. The world does not know this. Anyone who doesn't know Jesus doesn't know this. Doesn't know God's kindness and mercy and forgiveness and grace and gentleness and patience and love. You know that. You have the greatest knowledge. Some of you here are super smart and some of you here aren't on that same side of the scale. Whoever you are, if you know Jesus, you have the greatest knowledge in the whole world. Better knowledge than the smartest person who's ever lived. The knowledge of moving from death to life. The knowledge of reconciliation with God. So what do disciples do? They push back the darkness. They bring the light. They advance the kingdom of God. I want to read you a list. Robin Cuts, I wonder if you'll come up. We're going, to re- we're going to sing a song together. I just want to read you a list of things. And in a minute's time, we're going to be worshiping. And then we're going to take communion. And then we're going to leave. What does it look like to bring God's kingdom? This is just from Matthew 4, 5, 6, 7. Just, just things there, but it can look. <laughs> there's another million things we can put in. Just from Matthew 5, 6, 7. Push back the darkness, bring the light. Push back the darkness of anger and bring the light of forgiveness. Push back the darkness of lust and bring the light of purity. Push back the darkness of broken relationships and bring the light of covenant, the covenant of love. Push back the darkness of broken promises and bring the light of integrity and faithfulness. Push back the darkness of retribution and bring the light of a generous spirit. Push back the darkness of forsaking our enemies and bring the light of welcoming love. Push back the darkness of garnishing our own reputations 
and bring the light of an understanding kindness. Push back the darkness of false religion and bring the light of dependence on Father God. Push back the darkness of gloom and gloominess and bring the light of positivity. Push back the darkness of materialism and bring the light of freedom to enjoy with a heart set on heaven. Push back the darkness of anxiety and bring the light of faith-fueled assurance. Push back the darkness of judgmentalism and bring the light of humility and grace. Push back the darkness of self-reliance and bring the light of childlike faith. Push back the darkness of addictions and brokenness and hatred and discouragement and hunger and loneliness and poverty and sickness and division and bring the light. Put a smile on your face. Open your hands to give and to receive God's blessings. Get into the world, get into school, get into work, get into family, get into friends' houses with the expectation to push back the darkness, to bring the light. When you leave this room today, if the light of God has come into your heart, then you are empowered to take the light of God into our city. You can put a smile on your face and joy in your voice because you know the Lord of life. And you can expect to encounter people that you can push the light into their life and push against the darkness and advance His kingdom. What does it look like? It looks like a small dream. It looks like hanging out. It looks like dancing with a disabled friend on Friday, as the song says. It looks like a mother worshiping in her home, as the song says. It looks like a father not making work his idol, but giving time to those who need him. As the song says. We're going to sing this song, but this is what I want to ask you to do. And then I'm going to, we're going to go into communion. Would you close your eyes unless you need to read the words, which at some parts we will need to. Will you stand up, please? You don't, obviously, you don't have to. You have a will and a kingdom, and you get to do what you want with it. But I want you to, we've got plenty of room. You can move across a little bit. If you're nervous about people hearing your voice, just go find a, an open space. I want you to close your eyes so that you can concentrate on the darkness and the light in your own life, in your own heart, and through your life and through your heart. Normally what happens in a moment like this is that if you've not been doing well or you've, you've been really just a bad neighbor, this is when you start to be reminded of it and, and you start to think about it and the shame and the guilt. Um, that would not be God or the Holy Spirit. Just get over it. You know what? No one's surprised, least of all God. Don't let the enemy condemn you with an old thing. Let the light of God bring a lightness to your spirit. Bring self-forgiveness and self-forgetfulness so that we can concentrate on bringing the love of God to our neighbors, to the people around us, at work, at home. And in a place of freedom, as we sing this song, I'm going to ask Robin Cutts to play it with a sense of strength, I want you to shake off the dust that clings. Shake off the limitations, the fears, the anxieties that sit on top of you and crush you. 
and just worship God from a place of freedom. Let these truths pierce your heart. If you want to raise your hands, raise your hands. If you want to sing a song at the top of your lungs and you sing like a frog, do that. Do that. Jesus has come to set at liberty those who are captive. And every single one of us can still feel captive to old ways and old thoughts and old feelings and old habits. But in the name of Jesus, those things are broken off of our lives. And we need to be reminded of that, that the Spirit of God is and will continue to bring freedom to our lives. And so if there's an area where you know there hasn't been, don't lose hope. Press into God and let Him bring life. Let Him bring light. Let Him shine and push back that darkness and hopelessness. Every day His mercies are new. Every day He comes back to shine His light into your heart. Yours and mine. That's enough of focusing on us. I, I just want to do that so that we can leave this place knowing that we are the light of the world and we have something very precious and we need to go take it into every dark corner where God has given us the privilege to live and work. Let's sing this together and just go for it.